Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, Eric Adams tells us that uh, violent crime, crime on the New York City subways, for example, that's just a perception problem. J.B. Pritzker tells us that uh, no cash bail, that's simply to release nonviolent marijuana users and... And, you know, poor moms stealing formula and diapers, right? Right. Uh, Larry Krasner, who is the uh, Soros-funded DA of Philadelphia, tells us that... uh, saying cities are beset by violence, well, well, that's racist. Part of the Republican playbook, as you well know, is to point a finger at large, diverse cities and say large, diverse cities are lawless. Does that remind you of anything? You ever heard that before? Those of you in the press are students of history. You're aware of the Southern strategy. What we see here is the same old playbook, which is about coded and racist messaging. It's about blaming the biggest city in Pennsylvania with the most diverse population for having the same national struggle that we have with gun violence everywhere and even having increases that are less than the committee's counties. Yeah. Um, first of all, um, the those of you in the press corps, your students of history, no, they're not. So I just, I just object to that uh, out of hand. Um, Secondly, do you find that the lawless left's ever-evolving spin on crime is getting more desperate as we near November 8th? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. All of a sudden, uh, big cities in America are beset by the presence of guns, and this is the proximate cause of 30-year highs in violent crimes. No. Sorry, Lair. That's not going to fly. And um, you don't have to take it from me. Take it from Wawa, the convenience store okay. chain, which is, you know, Eastern Seaboard focused. I, basically, it's headquartered in Pennsylvania. They, they uh, just closed nine stores because of safety reasons. Yep. They're limiting hours on others. We've seen the same thing with Starbucks. I mean, these are Starbucks in particular, Howard Schultz. Yeah, they closed 16 stores across the country in High crime areas because they had to because nobody wanted to go to work. He that's exactly they're fearful for their lives. Specifically, what Howard Schultz said. He's no right winger, as you know. But okay, you you continue to stick with that line of argumentation, and and for those because I heard this over the weekend that um, my Democrat friends are telling people that uh, the Safety Act is just about releasing from uh, releasing marijuana users from prison. There are no nonviolent marijuana users in county jails. There are none. Mm -hmm. I I mean, for people who hear that from their quote-unquote Democrat friends, so correct the record. 
this is this is lunacy. And the good news is that more and more people are tuning into it. I don't know if it's going to be fast enough in Illinois, but they're certainly tuning into it around the country. And this, I would argue, is as much a reason that you have seen a move in the polling in favor of Republican candidates around the country as any issue, including inflation, even though that's number one. This is so visceral. And it is nonstop in big cities. And big cities aren't just about big cities, as we know, in Chicago. It's not Chicago. It's Chicago land. So it's not it's not uh, two point eight million people. It's eight million people when you include, you know, the suburbs and even the exurbs, which you know consider themselves or certainly have uh, a eye toward Chicago. And it's the same in all these major metropolitan areas. It's having a huge impact as it, as it should when you have. Uh, 51 dead, uh, 51 shot and 11 dead again over this weekend. And those numbers are still coming in. Because there were more shootings last night after midnight. We're, so. we're, we're not in the summer of joy anymore. I love it. You you tweeted out we're in the fall of fear. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, did everybody see that drifting incident at Kedzie and Archer? 100 cars plus. This is what it sounded like. Then all of a sudden shots were... Oh, they're gone. shooting. They're shooting. Oh, my God. People okay, running everybody. for their lives. And there's not enough police because it was warm out, so they started drifting. There was not enough police to stop them. Three uh, three people aged 15 to 20 dead, all affiliated with the gang, according to Chicago police. This is in Brighton Park, as you mentioned, on the southwest side. Uh, Chicago contrarian pointed out yesterday, and again, these totals will move around, but we're Mm -hmm. basically at 600 murdered, 3,000 shot this year. Chicago crossed to the end of another grisly week. 67 shot, 14 killed. And another mass shooting, this uh, drifting mass shooting you were just mentioning. Uh, multiple sources tell us that uh, Lightfoot is unwinding with Kim Fox at a fashion show at Venue West in Westtown tonight. We're told and, that Fox is modeling clothes at the show, too. Well, as long as they can get out and have a good time. And she can get some free stuff because normally when you model something, they either give it to you or give it to you at a, a real deep discount. Taylor and Bar- Bartlett, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, guys. Um, Dan, I just want to say keep up the good work. Your billboards, I see them every day. Uh, there's one on 294. There's one on 90. Um, your ads on TV. I saw the Joe Rogan one this weekend. Oh, hit it. Uh, the one with uh, Kim Glasgow and Pritzker. People are seeing this. People are hearing it. They're afraid. Any bar or restaurant I go into, the TVs are on. You see your ads, and people are talking about it. And I just saw a poll this weekend on, um, I read it on Breitbart. It said that Pritzker was coming in at 47% and Bailey was in at 44%. So people are fearful of what's going to happen come January 1. And this show, you guys have been hammering this home every day. I'm so grateful that you guys are because, again, people, it's resonating with everybody and people are terrified. So you guys have a great day. Keep up the good work. Thanks for the call, Taylor. Appreciate it. I uh, love the Joe Rogan ad. Twelve hundred. Really good. Thank you. Twelve hundred. Um, Twelve hundred new cops are being sent down to New York City subways. But I wait. I thought it was a perception problem. It's, oh, really? it's not. This is. This is about a. This is like um, the modern monetary theorists. Oh, inflation's a worldwide problem. Crime is a national problem. Right, because you have people that have the same ideological disposition. Pursuing the same policies, so you're getting the same results, whether it's in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or L.A. Yeah, 
Uh, we get it. It's not just in Chicago. It's not just in New York. Just like inflation is not just in Illinois. It's not just in New York. But you have the same type of people, I mean, in terms of philosophy, in terms of policy choices, making the same choices, get generating the same results. How is this complicated? It's not complicated. 1,200 cops down into new cops assigned to New York City subway because they're at a 30-year high in murders in the New York City subway. People are throwing each other under the tracks. Yeah, and then a 14-year-old girl got stabbed this weekend. Keep oh. going. But it's a perception problem. Oh, okay. Okay. It's a perception problem on the CTA, too. Really? According to city records, there have been 34 murders on the CTA since 2001. In the last... 20 years, there's been 34 murders. You know how many have happened in 2022 of the 34? Nine. 25% in one year, this year, of the last 20. That's what's happening. It is unraveling. These big cities are disintegrating because they cannot and will not abide their first responsibility, the physical security of their constituents. This could not be more straightforward. Vince St. Charles. Good morning, guys. You know, I I know I have a group of friends that have their heads up their rear, and they'll never understand anything. I tried to give a pa- your one of your the papers to a friend of mine. He's called that propaganda. Yeah, At right. what point do you give up and say, okay, if you can't find out for yourself, you can't figure it out yourself, then I don't know what to tell you anymore, right? Yeah, no, I mean, right, some people can't be reached. Uh, I get it. You move on. Move on to the next person. Move on to somebody who actually has firing synapses and wants to understand the world and and make intelligent, informed decisions. Not everybody wants to do that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Vince. Uh, what do we see too? Here, here we go in terms of solving crimes. Oh yeah. Don't believe <clears throat> Superintendent Brown because I've been to two press conferences where he said we've solved fifty percent of the murders committed in Chicago in twenty twenty two, and that is a lie. CPD, CPD's, Chicago Police Department's public data. Their own data. <clears throat> 143 <clears throat> arrests have been made in 143 of the, as of this data, October 12th, it's more murders than this, but 143 arrests in the 547 murders that have been committed, that's 26%. As of September 19th, C, C, D, CPD, Chicago Police, saw charges in 216 of the year's homicide cases, 216 out of 547. Prosecutors approved 119 of those charges. Um, and, and solved you know, can also mean they have identified the offender, but prosecutors refused to charge or ordered CPD to investigate further. Um, it also includes cases where CPD believes the murderer has himself died. So... You know the data is complicated, but 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 the bottom line on this, the net net of this is, you're they're not solving enough crimes and they're not prosecuting enough people and putting them behind bars, violent criminals for extended periods of time, removing them from society. Once you have demonstrated you cannot live peacefully in society, that's the bottom line, and the clearance rates are not good, and it's not this is not a, an indictment of rank and file police. It's an indictment of the leadership of law enforcement, civilian and uniformed, including David Brown and his senior leadership team. David and Winnetka. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, I came up with a new definition for what the Safety Act really stands for, and that would be 
socialist-approved, frightening environments. And the tea is terrible. Well, not bad. Socialist-approved. Socialist-approved. Say one more time. Socialist-approved, frightening environments. Terrible. All right. Not bad. Thanks for the call, David. Bob, Buffalo Grove. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks um, for taking my call, and good to hear your voice again, Dan, and your comments. Uh, you took away my talking point uh, with regards to the 14 dead. I saw your tweet on um, uh, both of you guys tweet retweeted the contrarian. With regards to 14 dead, uh, I'd like to verify, verify that because uh, I'm still seeing uh, lesser numbers in the media. And if it is 14 dead, that has to be one of the highest totals in recent uh, months. Uh, I don't think we've even hit that number on the big uh, Labor Day weekend. Yeah, because it was warm Again, up. Thanks for reporting this, and um, I'm looking forward to more talk this today. Have a great day. Thanks, Bob. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So, uh, Amy, uh, the sisterhood of the traveling pants, uh, Kappa Kappa Gamma, your sisterhood, they're going to need to make some more room in the crotch for those pants that you share. Yeah, for the first time ever... The Kappa Kappa Gamma Sorority is making history because they have initiated, uh, accepted, uh, threw out a bid to a transgender male student. But the male student still has his penis. So he's not really transitioned to womanhood. And I am, a lot of people are scratching their heads, wondering, well, there's fraternities for men and there's sororities for women. So why are they trying to be so woke and uh, make a difference? I can't wait for the uh, Ladies of the Mountain West calendar this year. Oh. Looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, the um, individual in question, uh, Ar- Artemis Langford, identifies as a woman. He's he's, he's a, just calling himself a girl. He's, and he looks he's not, like a dude. He's not trans. Well, because he is a dude. Okay. Well, yeah, then, that that's right. that explains it then. Yeah. So um, no, I mean the the. Um, what do you guys do? Do you do mixers or what? what well, we do a lot of things. We have, you know, we do a uh-huh. lot of pillow fights. Pillow, exactly. Somebody's going to get hurt in the pillow fights <laughs> now. Well, the fact that I don't know if they're if they're at the Wisconsin or the Wyoming chapter if they live in the house, but if they live in the house, and if I was the parent of one of those daughters, I would make sure that they weren't 
living or showering together. Because, but their pledge class looks like they're seventeen. Their normal pledge class is forty-eight to fifty. I'm sure you know this, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's already rumblings of trying to shut the chapter down. Um, there's a lot of people that are conservative women that are very successful that are going to be stopped their donations. They're not going to be don- donating any money to the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation because of this. And uh, that's why, again, there's fraternities and sororities for a reason. Well, We do uh, sisterhood events. We do bonding exercises. We do just girl things. And Artemis, and Langford, Artemis Langford is excited to be a part of that. I feel so glad to be in a place that I think not only shares my values, but to be in a sisterhood of awesome women that want to make history. Uh, Langford told uh, a local outlet, I want to break the glass, ce- glass ceiling trailblazing, you know, and I certainly feel that as their first trans member, at least in this chapter, in Wyoming history. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick text message. It's Kappa Kappa Gamma, we were founded 150 years ago at Mammoth Duo, and uh, the principles are integrity, respect, and regard for others. Yeah, and... um, And they have this thing, Guide for Supporting Our LGBTQ Plus Members. So this this is, look, this is new, came out over the weekend. Living their values, Uh, no, I get it. Treat everyone with respect and dignity. Do not make her... Um, this is, I get, I get the kindergarten yeah. stuff. So yeah. what? What does well, that I'm have to do with this? Because they changed the guidelines. This is new, Dan. This is now for supporting our LGBTQ plus members. And Capas can be supportive, and they are supportive of LGBTQ members. But if you're not a female, you should not be in a sorority. Yeah. Don't you think well, we have to draw the line somewhere? Yeah. It's, 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 the problem is, um, you know, here's where um, logic and contemplating consequences of positions taken. Uh, it becomes particularly relevant, something I, some people just say, can't seem to get their heads around. Uh, you erase the lines, you don't get to redraw them. Simple as that. And so somebody like Artemis Langford wants to make history, wants to break the glass ceiling, in other words, wants attention, then you will reorganize your organization around him. Because that's what you said you will do. You said there are no lines. And now... You're supposed to be upset at Artemis Langford because he's taken advantage of your decision to erase all the lines? I'm not upset at him. I'm upset that they changed the guidelines. Standards. Uh, any. <clears throat> I am an initiated member of Kappa who recently transitioned from female to male. Am I going to lose my membership? No. Kappa members who identify as transgender during any stage of their membership will not lose their membership rights. <clears throat> and this standard changed because... I think it was, what, five years ago, remember, we had this conversation when a male tried, went through Rush at Northwestern, and every single sorority did not give him a bid because he was a dude. And because nobody, you know, I, I don't know, because <clears throat> it's a personality thing, and whether you get along with the person or not, or if they have the same. Well, when you go through Rush, they vote on you. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to have participated in to understand how this works. We've all seen Animal House. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Um, or, or PCU for that matter. Um, so, so right. So that was that was five minutes ago. Five minutes ago, it was okay to turn away a dude on a college campus. We're we're five minutes out. We've already restarted history. That that history has been erased. A hundred and fifty year history. No, no, a hundred two years ago. You said, oh, Northwestern. A, a couple years ago. A couple years ago. That's ancient history. The bad old days. History is started fresh. Every single day with the left. Is this not clear? Uh, good news uh, f- for the Wyoming girls volleyball team. 
Artemis Langford can play volleyball there too. I, I don't know if he's a good volleyball player, but um, speaking of men playing women's sports, it's not just in the pool, as I think everybody knows now. Um, this uh, incident at a North Carolina girls' high school volleyball match where a player suffered a serious injury after a dude struck her in the head with a ball on a spike. It was going, they believe, 70 miles per hour, and this is the play. That's that's riveting radio. Well, I Later we'll be uh, playing porn on the radio. Okay. Uh, the 70 mile per hour is a dude who hit the ball. You can see her hit her right in the head. She's concussed. She may lose her vision. Uh, as a volleyball coach who's coached both boys and girls, I have broken this hand three times and my wrist. One time I was holding a speed gun and I got hit with a ball that was going 52 miles per hour. I cannot imagine 70 miles per hour. It's, this is serious stuff. That's why you don't have girls play with boys. And if they do play with them, you tell them not go full, to go full speed. He was an outside hitter. He hit her down the line, shot right in her head. And she fell down, and they had to get the medics to take her off the court. It's, it's, I mean, this is, people, women are getting injured now. Do, do people care now? It's not now. It's, it's been happening. We, we, nobody cares. We had a, a, a woman uh, have to fight a man in, in uh, UFC. Oh, and got that her, was And so got, got her face caved in. Hey, whatever. I mean, look, you're going you know, to break a few skulls in the pursuit of the greater utopian vision for, for America and for the West. The right? girl's net is two feet lower than a man's net, and he had hops. His vertical was at least 38, and he jumped up there. He's arched up and just slammed it right into her head. She suffered severe head and neck injuries, uh, together long-term concussion sy- symptoms, including vision problems. But, I mean, you know, hey, what are you going to do, not let the dude play with the girls? Well, what that's a bridge too far. No, what they did, they voted five to one to forfeit all matches for the women's volleyball team at that district high school against it's called Highland Schools, which is where, where this person was playing <clears throat> a transgender playing as a woman. Mm. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. What's the rest of the conference going to do? What's the, what are the rest of the high schools in North Carolina going to do? Well, athletic directors and coaches, you need to protect your players at some point in time. So I applaud what they did to vote, you know, to forfeit the matches. But then again, that's less touches on the balls for the girls team that's playing by the rules. And also, what what position did he take away what from a girl that was trying to get on the girls team? Yeah. You know, it's uh it's a sticky business having to remedy all these wrongs, all these uh manufactured wrongs of the left. She might and reorganize see. society. Reorganizing society, um, making people believe that men and women are the same, and that boys should be playing girls' sports. I mean, that's um, it's a big lift. So you know, there's going to be some stops and starts, but we're going to continue to marshal on, aren't we? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Microsoft uh, just uh, dropped its latest Pride flag design. Seen this? Yeah, I saw it. It gave me a headache. Wonderful. There's a lot going on there. It's very busy. Uh, the flag combines 40 different flags from LGBTQIA plus communities around the world, including abrosexual, ace flux, agender, ambiamorous, 
uh, androgynous, erose, aroflux, aromatic, asexual, bigender, bisexual, demi-fluid, demi-gender, demi-girl, demi-romantic, demi-sexual, all the demis, demi-more, gay MLM, Venetian, Venetian, uh, some of these are even new to me, uh, gender fluid, gender flux, gender queer, gender questioning, gray sexual, gray What's, sexual. What is that? I don't know. Gray sexual? Maybe uh, look it up. you're into Wilford Brimley. I don't know. Uh, intersex, lesbian, maverick, maverick, anybody? Maverick? No? Any, no? Mavericks no. here? Uh, neutrosis, non-binary, neutrosis. omnisexual, pangender, pansexual, polyamorous, polysexual, Transgender, trigender. What is that? Hmm. Two spirit. Any two, anybody a two, two spirit? Two spirit. Uh, who's got spirit? Uh, yes, you do. I got spirit. How about you? you? Yes, I got two yes, spirits. yes, we do. We got spirit. I got How about two you? spirits. We've got more. Hey, progress, pride, queer, and unlabeled. Hmm. Boy, I mean, that's you know, this is Microsoft. This is one of the leading software companies on the planet. And look at the leadership they're providing on this. Isn't it great? Can't they just stick to computers? Uh, do, do they have se- separate seating sections in the uh, corporate lunchroom for all these uh, different categories of LGBTQIA+. Hmm. And are you allowed to, if you identify as Maverick, are you allowed to, you know, someday sit with the abrosexuals would be my question. Of course, that's your question. John Naperville. Hey, no, Groucho's Mark's word couldn't ring truer today. I, I don't want to become a member of any club that would have me as a member. This is ridiculous, guys. Thanks for the call, John. Uh, John always does the mic drop. Chuck in <laughs> Delavan, Wisconsin. Hey, Chuck. Chuck. Chuck in Delavan. Chuck. Chuck. Chuck in Delavan. Chuck. We can hear you eating your cheese. Chuck. Chuck! Sorry, Chuck. <laughs> um, so uh, what about Iowa? Are you going to go back and um, have a conversation with your sisters about uh, this development in Wyoming? Uh, there's conversations going on at oh, the Kappa, Kappa Gamma headquarters. Because each, each chapter... Where's the headquarters? Um, well, Mammoth Duel. But the headquarters, I'm not sure. There's Kappa Key, which I'm waiting for the Kappa Key to come out with an article about this. And oh, I'll yeah. decide whether or not they're celebrating it or they're going to have an open discussion about it. Breaking glass ceilings. What's not to celebrate? Tom in Blue Island. Again, good to have you back. Uh, Amy, I think if you want to get so animated about the volleyball, maybe these kids could start wearing helmets like all the people, all the oh. grown men. I saw riding around Mount Greenwood and Blue Island this week and riding their bicycles two miles an hour wearing helmets. <laughs> All those tough guys in Blue Island and Beverly, Tom? Yeah. Their superhero yeah. outfits on. Thanks for yeah. the call. Yeah. Um, John, Crown Point. Hi, Dan and Amy. I love your guys' oh, show. Man. There it is. Love Amy more, there though. Hey, my wife had added one to the LGBTQ plus. Mm-hmm. She added an A. There's LGBTQ plus A. And I'm the A, she said. <laughs> you 
know what the A stands for, right? I can only imagine. I don't want you to tell me. Yeah. I do know yeah, what it stands don't. for. There are many A's uh, here. There's um, abrosexual, ace flux, agender, ambiamorous, androgynous, erosi, aeroflux, aromantic. Aromantic. Oh, aromantic. Or aromantic. I don't know. Probably A. So no romantic, like asexual, no sexual. Hmm. I'm aromantic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm part of the LGBTA you community. You are. Congratulations. Yeah. Wait, what's your color? What do you, what do you wear? Do you what? have a ribbon? What are you going to do? I'm going to go back. Uh, I'm gonna, I am gonna. I don't think I can play at the Northwestern level. I'll go back and play the girls team at, at Bennett. Oh. No, you, they don't need you. They're they're good without you. No, I, They're that, ranked in the state. Well, no, well, but that, that makes it sound like any of this has to do with what's oh, good for the right. team. Exactly. This is about my self-indulgence, just like Artemis Langford in University of Wyoming. And everybody who wants to defer to him, the culture of deference, the culture of deference that Shelby Steele has wrote so persuasively about when it came when it comes to race relations. Well, the same thing applies here with this identitarian gambit. Defer, defer, defer. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're getting spiked in the head by a dude. How about it? She might not have vision in her left eye. And I know some people that have had concussions. They play club volleyball, boys club volleyball. And they hit the ball so hard that one kid, he still, he never got to play ever again. It's that serious. It's a weapon when it goes that fast. But, hey, makes the guy feel good, you know? That's the most important thing. People's self-esteem is the most important thing. That is the highest value, highest order. And the left's solidarity and marginality game where they use people as mascots. It doesn't matter if it helps them or hurts them because other people are just means to their political ends, you see. And so is Artemis Lankford and all the people celebrating him. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy with uh, Trump subpoenaed by the J6 Commission at Star Chamber. And uh, Steve Bannon uh, set for a four-month stint in prison because he wouldn't comply with a subpoena issued by the J6 Star Chamber. All of those torquemadas on the J6, most notably the two uh, Republican quislings, Lynn Cheney and 
uh, Liz Cheney, I should say, and, uh, of course, our very own Adam Kinzinger. I was just talking about this the other day with somebody. Oh, the two bright rising stars in the Illinois Republican Party, Adam Kinzinger and Aaron Schock. How do they work out? <laughs> Where is Aaron Schock, too, by the way? Is he still taking selfies of himself? Uh, Working yeah. out, showing off the abs. Getting lathered up somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Stephen Friend is a FBI whistleblower. FBI agent that was um, involved in the Whitmer kidnapping plot, interdicting said plot or participating in said entrapment, depending on your perspective, uh, as well as uh, J6. He sat down with Cheryl Atkinson, our friend from Full Measure, to talk about uh, why he got into the FBI, what he saw on the inside, and how it went from assignments like Whitmer to child exploitation cases to J6 to whistleblower. First Whitmer. FBI Detroit office opened an investigation on individuals that said they were part of a militia that was intending on kidnapping and assassinating Gretchen Whitmer. We were one of the tactical teams that assisted with the takedowns there. So we, we executed that warrant and uh, drove away. I thought that I'd done, done good work that day. Now in the intervening time, there's uh, a lot came out with the trials of those individuals. What came out was that the FBI was driving the kidnapping plot through multiple informants and undercover agents. They included the militia group leader, Dan Chappell, an FBI informant who took the lead in plotting Whitmer's kidnapping and offered up a credit card to buy bullets and supplies paid for by the FBI. In the fallout, it appeared that the undercovers and the uh, case agents were driving this case and driving this narrative to and trap individuals who were uh, not disposed to commit the crimes. And I, I frankly felt like I'd been used as, you know, a, as an apparatchik of a politically driven agency. And now two of those uh, who were charged were found guilty of conspiring to kidnap Whitmer. Um, I know one was sentenced to four years in prison. But anyway, two were... Well, it con- sounds like they were set up. Well... I mean, uh, you, I respect the jury's verdict on the matter, I suppose. I mean, if, even if, if an FBI undercover FBI agent came to me and said, I've concocted this plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer or anybody else, I wouldn't go along with it. Uh, I, you know, so, I mean, you know, you, these these uh, people have to bear responsibility for participating in a uh, in an idiotic scheme and an illegal one. So so there's that. But. The the larger point here is the question about trying to create white supremacists where they don't exist, create, uh, you know, white nationalists where they don't exist in, in terms of being a threat to public order. That's the larger play here. And it get, we get to this when uh, he moves from the Whitner, Whitmer kidnapping. He then is assigned to the, he's out of the Jacksonville field office, Jacksonville, Florida. He's assigned to child exploitation cases before he gets to, uh, before he's then pulled and he's on to the Jan 6, as he explains. And here's the, here's the issue that I want to raise in part, as you'll hear from Stephen Friend. Friend went on to what he thought was a long-term assignment working child exploitation cases under the FBI's Jacksonville, Florida field office. But just three months into the assignment, he was reassigned to a higher priority, 
January 6th domestic terrorism cases. Friend says financial incentives rewarded FBI managers who built lots of cases under the heading of domestic terrorism. So is it accurate to say the local FBI offices that brought January 6th cases probably saw financial benefit, at least the individual executives with the FBI in those offices? Yes. Is it accurate to say, as far as you know, there were not bonuses being given for child exploitation cases? As far as I know, there weren't. See, this is the, this is where we get to something that's important. Um, you, uh, you're looking for things that you have an incentive to find, financial incentive, even if they don't really exist. Uh, these, you know, white domestic terrorists that are political in orientation, you know, and conservative. Everybody's a domestic terrorist. This is the greatest threat to the nation. That's what the president has said. And they need it for midterms to paint people as white domestic terrorists. This is the great threat to America. Uh, these uh, knuckleheads up in Michigan who uh, conspired with the FBI to, I guess, to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. At least a couple of them were convicted. And uh, uh, some other knuckleheads on the mall on January 6th who decided to go over and uh, create a ruckus, yeah, a create a riot around the Capitol. But but the the disposition of law enforcement here matters. Are you trying to create the circumstances that allow you to consummate this assertion that you've made about America? And are you essentially serving as an enforcement arm for political leaders in advance of their political ambitions by diminishing their political opponents as threats to democracy? financial incentives to bring cases. Here was his review of what he saw on January 6th, since he was one of the agents assigned talking about Stephen Friend here. I, I had sort of a mixed review. It, to me, there, there were some, some violent uh, actions by individuals that probably warranted uh, criminal prosecution. But then I also saw other cases where the individual was simply walking into the Capitol building with the permission of Capitol Police officers. And it told the FBI that very same fact, and, and on occasion there was surveillance video to support it. it kind of seemed to me that it was a waste of our valuable resources to pursue even a, an interview with that individual if we had them on video not committing any crime and just walking into the Capitol building, which is their right to do as an American citizen. Yeah. So, I mean, and here's what's not tolerated. Any sort of mixed review like Stephen Friend gives, you're either, you know, uh, completely aligned with the J6 star chamber and see every see this as an insurrection, number one. And anybody who participated was on site in any material way was at the rally before where Trump spoke. They're an insurrectionist. They're a threat to democracy. Everything's a threat to democracy. Everybody's a domestic terrorist. If who you voted supports, for Trump, people assume that you're an insurrectionist. You're a semi-fascist. That's the president says. You made this happen. Remember that? So. Uh, this is why, like, you know, any sort of measured, textured analysis based on actual conduct or the lack thereof, criminal conduct versus uh, non-criminal conduct versus, you know, peaceable assembly, essentially. And I'm not in, and I'm, I'm you know, you, you want to ticket somebody for trespassing, uh, even if they were 
uh, not violent, fine. Yeah, I get it. Rule of law, fine. We've said from the beginning, we've said from January 7th of 2021 on, yeah, people who broke the law should be held to account under the law. But the question is, that's not, not the end of the inquiry. The question is the application of law enforcement, the application of state power, is it proportional to the threat? That matters, too. And this is where he offers a comparison of J6 to Whitmer, does Stephen Friend. With the overlap of you know, the way that those individuals were uh, or may have been entrapped, and I saw that some of these individuals with January 6th were being allowed into the Capitol by police officers. There was certainly an element of that that, to me, smelled a little bit like entrapment. And I didn't want to make the same mistake twice. There was that once shame on you, twice shame on me, thinking that I had. And what pushed him to become a whistleblower, as he explains, if you haven't familiarized yourself with Stephen Friend up until now, is the heavy-handedness of the FBI's approach to people that were going to be arrested and charged with criminal trespass or disorderly conduct or worse from their activities on January 6th. Heavy-handed. We hear this a lot. We've seen this a lot from, uh, and, and this is why it's important, detestable figures like Roger Stone, my estimation. That's how I would describe him. Yeah, I can't stand him. Uh, but, but, to uh, the pro-life pastor in Pennsylvania. The heavy-handedness, obviously, including the Mar-a-Lago raid, too. Over the top. Why? Out of an abundance of caution to provide for the agent's safety? No. To make a political spectacle in advance of a political flag? Yes. And when he raised the issue of the heavy-handedness of the FBI's response to people who are willing to surrender, where you could have picked somebody up uh, on their way to work, you know, knocked at their door at home, uh, even though, you know, as we know, you know, home uh, detentions are the most uh, complicated. So that's why I say, and he said, too, somebody on their way to work, pull them out of their office or whatever. I mean, there's so many ways to do this when there's no legitimate, reasonable threat of violence. And they chose not to. So he raised the issue and uh, he got uh, a response from the agent in charge of the Jacksonville FBI office, field office there. Here's how that went. For refusing to take part in the raids, Friend says he received an ultimatum, then a suspension from the FBI's Jacksonville special agent in charge, Sherry Onks. What did she say? She said that it, it appeared to her that I'd lost faith in the agency and its leadership and that I represented a very fringe belief uh, about the events of January 6th not needing the heavy-handedness that the FBI was treating them, and that the, my belief that there could be potential abuses of power that it was incumbent on me to call out as a matter of my oath of office. She said that that was a very fringe belief and that uh, you know, I needed to do some soul-searching about whether or not I wanted to have a future in the FBI. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. Here's how he thinks about uh, the FBI today. Does Stephen Friend? I apply to the FBI because I believe in the mission. I look at my responsibility as uh, I want to combat bullying, and that's why I became a special agent. 
if the FBI becomes the bully, that doesn't change my responsibility. I need to stand up and, and face that down, even if it means my career. And if the FBI is willing to become a bully, then it's truly lost. Sound like a right-wing extremist? Arden Woodstock, Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, right after January 6th happened, that within that week or so, when the videos were still flying around before they started disappearing off the Internet, there's a video of a... Oregon, a Democrat Oregon congressman opening the West door, allowing these people to come in. And then they show the surveillance of the guy just walking around, talking to him in front of the building. And then he walks right back in the front door. He had no reason, real reason watching the video, why he would have went out the the side door to come back around to the front door, other than to let those people in the West door. And they were just kept coming in and coming in and he held the door open for them. I didn't see that. Thanks for the call, Art. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's still a lot of questions surrounding uh, what happened on January 6th, what the extent of the FBI's involvement was, uh, the number of undercover agents or confidential informants that were being used. We don't really have answers to that. Uh, we also don't have a real accounting because, again, the J6 committee is a star chamber. It's an illegitimate body because it's not bipartisan. Because it represents a singular point of view, because they are not doing an expansive inquiry into all aspects of this, including, for example, the chain of communication between the sergeants at arms and the legislative leaders. That would be McConnell and Pelosi, what they knew when they knew it and why they didn't call in backup or the National Guard or something. The uh, an accounting they wanted of, to let it happen. I feel like an accounting of the meeting uh, that uh, preceded January six by what was it three days? Was it January third? If I'm remembering correctly, with uh, the then Secretary of Defense and Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where President Trump raised the issue of safety on January sixth and was told by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of Defense, no problem, we got this. And now the DOJ is asking for $34 million to continue with the January 6th investigations. Mike in Littleton, Colorado. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for taking my call. I can't help but wonder, you know, when those people who have virtue self-select out because they don't want to deal with it anymore or uh, are suspended or punished like this man was. Yep. And then these government agencies get to stack restack the deck with their own people and you know with this quota hiring and all of this other stuff you know it's going to have nothing to do with how well you can do the job it's going to have everything to do with what your ideology is it's we're really postured to be in a very bad way and um it's a serious stuff it is serious stuff thanks for the call mike it is serious stuff and uh, i mean again a quick review of the last uh 30 years of uh, FBI investigations, I, I, you know, and again, a lot of good work done by a lot of field, field agents on a ro- rolling basis, on a daily basis. However, when there isn't good work done, what kind of accountability is visited upon the agency and those responsible? Do you want to walk backwards from from Russian collusion, let's say, all the way to the uh, bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. 
Richard Jewell, and everybody in between. Covering up for Nasser, who was molesting kids. They knew it, and they didn't do anything. They sat on it while he molested 20-plus more girls. They can't get their lives back, their innocence back. Phil and Darian. Hey, guys. Good morning. Listen, Dan, uh, good to have you back. Listen, uh, what what is it going to take for us Republicans to start a thorough investigation with uh, two uh, Democrats that call themselves Republicans, or, or vice versa? What, what's it going to take, Dan, for that to happen? Yeah. And, you know, all this to come out. Well, I don't, I don't want to— Combat, thanks for the call, Phil. I don't want to combat one star chamber with another, uh, but I do want Congress to seriously exercise its oversight responsibilities and powers as serious as Congress can be, which is, you know, I have sort of a low estimation of that. Uh, but there are there will be opportunities. There will definitely be opportunities if you have the Senate and the House in Republican hands come next January, come this January, I suppose I should say. Uh, We know that there are certain senators and members of the House that are very interested in going after for the purposes of setting the record straight and getting uh, the evidence out into public view, the public health establishment. The names Rand Paul and Ron Johnson come to mind. The FBI, the name Jim Jordan comes to mind, and others. So, yeah, I mean, you know, control of the chambers matters, and to the extent that you'll have a real accounting or something approaching a real accounting will depend on what happens November 8th. And then, you know, the fortitude of Republicans in positions of authority as committee chairman and caucus leaders, as well as just members of Congress and state leaders that may have presidential ambitions into 2024. I mean, that's how it, that's how it, that's how it works. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. That's how it works. If it's going to work, you have to have people step up and be willing to do intellectual battle in public in these arenas. I don't want to do what the left is doing. I want to undo what the left is doing and rebalance these power relationships. And I'm talking about the power relationship between these agencies and these agency heads and the American people. John in Florence, Wisconsin. Well, here's an interesting question. When was the last time that the FBI investigated and convicted criminals, not political criminals, criminals like money launderers or frauds or drug cartels or organized crime or, you know, when was the last time they knocked down some serious uh, corrupt politicians? When was the last time they did anything non-political? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Thanks for the call, John. Well, I mean, again, there there are m- multiple instances of this. I mean, you even just think of Operation Legend under a bar and Trump in terms of uh, working with local authorities to oh, combat gang up. violence. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's a successful program. And, and, and there's a lot the FBI does in interdicting uh, you know, cartel activity 
I, so I, I, there's no reason to paint with a broad brush or to overstate the argument because the argument is compelling on the facts. The argument is compelling on the spectacular failures of the FBI and some of the rolling failures as the agency continues to uh, allow itself to be politicized. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the treatment of, by all accounts, peaceful pro-life protesters to the work product on the violence committed against pro-family organizations, crisis pregnancy resource centers, and, and the like after the Dobbs decision, churches, churches. I mean, that alone is the latest black mark against the FBI. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Don't miss Freedom Summit Chicago on November 5th. Get your tickets today before they sell out. Go to freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A uh, pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, John Amanchaku, who's black, recently addressed the Wake County School Board. And he specifically had comment on the million dollars a year the school is spending in its Office of Equity Affairs, saying it's not helping black students. Take a listen to Pastor John. You know, this past year we spent $1 million on a diversity office. And how did that benefit black children? How did it benefit children in general? Well, 78% of third through eighth grade black students are not proficient in math in Wake County. We're wasting taxpayer dollars putting money towards this diversity office that's not benefiting those who need it the most. 66% of third through eighth grade students are not proficient in reading. Black students, they're not reading on grade level. They're not performing mathematically, and they're not going to be able to get jobs in the fields like STEM. But we're wasting money on a diversity, equity, and inclusion office while we are failing black students in the name of diversity. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. It sounds about uh, the stats at Chicago. Chicago's a little worse than Raleigh, but you get the picture. It's the same thing everywhere. And we had uh, Governor Spaulding ask about critical race theory at the last gubernatorial debate. It says, doesn't that, it's not being taught in schools. And he said that with such certainty. No, no, not, not being taught in schools. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, City Journal, a couple of researchers at the Manhattan Institute did a survey and posted City Journal, including our friend Professor Eric Hoffman, along with Zach Goldberg. A piece, yes, critical race theory is being taught in schools. Yeah, we know. Uh, but it's just worth pointing out. They um, they make an important um, statement here 
so you don't get into this ridiculousness of te- it's technically not critical race theory unless you signed Kimberly Crenshaw's work. Nonsense. As Goldberg and Kaufman write, publicly funded schools that teach and pass off left-wing racial ideological theories and concepts as if they're undisputed factual knowledge are engaging in indoctrination, not education. The question before us is not whether or to what extent public schools are assigning the works of Richard Delgado or Kimberly Crenshaw and other critical race theorists. It's whether the schools are uncritically promoting a left-wing racial ideology. Yes, that's the point. Critical race theory is a handle. Yeah, because all these people say, well, technically it's not critical. They're such wonderful academic intellects. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. They're repeating a talking point. So they did this survey of 1,500 18- to 20-year-old Americans and asked, state, asked about statements and whether this was part of their education. This was part of the coursework. Things like America is a systemically racist country. America is built on stolen land. America is a patriarchal society. White people have white privilege in America. Yeah. And so... When it came to concepts, CRT-related concepts, 62% reported either being taught in class or hearing from an adult in school, America is systemically racist. 69% taught or hearing white people have white privilege. 57% taught or hearing white people have unconscious biases that negatively affect non-white people and so on and so forth. Of course it's being taught. Silliness. It's not not technically critical race theory unless these specific authors are assigned. Nonsense. It makes these declarative statements, and then people that are dumb enough to believe them, believe it. And so um, we have a good example of where this started, and it couldn't be a uh, better target for this. New Trier High School, as I mentioned before, Mike Scott's newscast. We were on this when uh, New Trier had their first We Hate White People Day. And it uh, gave rise to uh, parental, parental pushback which uh, developed into a local community organization of, you know, basically parents that have a sort of a center-right perspective and don't want a racial order imposed on their kids at the schools they pay for. That's sort of the gist of it. And if you don't think that's happening, it's not happening. Just bury your head in the sand. New York Post reviewed documents from five private schools in New York City that found several are instituting optional and required anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion training for parents. Oh, now they're forcing it on the parents. At Brearley School, which is an all-girls prep school, parents are expected to attend two diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism workshops per year. Additionally, prospective parents are required to write a 500-word essay that explains their commitment to die and anti-racism if they want their kid to be considered for entrance into the Revere Brearley School. No, it's not happening. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Beth Feely, who's an advisor to the Woodson Center. She's affiliated with the 1776 Unites Project, which is in part a response to the New York Times' 1619 Project. She's also one of the uh, founders of Nutrier Neighbors, which is that community organization I was referencing, promoting common sense policies in local government. And speaking of Brearley, she hosts a podcast, co-hosts a podcast on uh, Ricochet at ricochet.com uh, with um, 
uh, a um, father, uh, what's what's his name again? Gutman, Andrew Gutman, uh, who's uh, pulled his daughter out of Brearley School just for exactly the reasons that we're describing. Beth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan Amy. Thanks for having me. So uh, recently, Mother Jones, which is a left-wing rag, uh, decided to try to trace the origins of the parental revolt uh, along the lines of uh, CRT and anti-racist propaganda. And they landed on Nutrier, and they landed on you and uh, other parents in Nutrier who opposed the I Hate White People Day. Uh, uh, and, and take us back to that uh, race seminar day that was interestingly discontinued after the parental revolt and uh, what happened there and what, what it was that parents who objected to the way seminar day was constructed, what they objected to and what the, what they wanted as a remedy. So this was about six years ago. Now Uh, we came across the fact that the school was going to do this work day of workshops. Um, And yes, it was titled seminar day, the struggle for racial civil rights. And we weren't sure how that differed from civil rights, but um, the titles of the some of the workshops were like Western Bias in Science and Developing a White Activism for Racial Civil Rights. And, you know, these workshops just sounded biased. They sounded racist and certainly not educational. So we challenged the school to make it more intellectually balanced, um, you know, featuring people like Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele. And uh, the school refused. The media picked up on the story, and you know, and it became a national news story. And now, um, now, as they, as as I said, as Mother Jones tries to trace the the uh, the parental revolt. I mean, how, how do you and uh, your fellow parents in Nutrier look at that day, the Nutrier Neighbors Organization, and the work that you do in in the context of the parental revolt that we now see bubbling up? all over the place from Virginia to North Carolina to, um, you know, just about every state in the nation. You have parents, uh, well, at least a few parents doing their William Jennings Bryan routines before school boards. Sure. You know, I think I think we were just responding to something we saw locally. You know, little did we know that this would have reverberations across the nation. And I think I think really what happened is that. Um, Nutrier was kind of ahead of the curve um, in implementing some of these ideas, and uh, I think perhaps that they also were present in other schools, but I think COVID really exposed them. And so, you know, we're quite frankly kind of proud of the moniker, I guess, that Mother Jones, of all places, is um, crediting us with. But I think, you know, we were happy to be at the fore of that, and I think, if anything, we're so encouraged to see all of these other groups and movements rise up because quite frankly to um address this issue in schools it is going to take you know it's going to take a lot of bodies and so it's it's just been very exciting to see um just a whole lot more support in that way what, what's changed at Nutria? that's a great question you know as, as you mentioned they did not do another seminar day um so we did see that as a win of course they pledged to embed you know this type of thinking into the curriculum and so we do see that but we also do see, you know, we've been able to make some positive progress. Uh, we were able to get Nutria to sign a critical thinking and civil discourse statement that kind of sets a standard that they will value intellectual diversity, which is really missing, obviously, from seminar day. And so we do know parents have pointed to that um, when they come across these instances in their kids' classrooms where a teacher is being biased. They will say, look, you know, this is what the school stands for. And so they will, you know, hold the teacher to that standard. 
um, you know, it's going to take a long time. It's a large institution. Um, I think this is fairly deep seated um, in certain corners. I actually don't believe that most teachers go along with this or, or support it. I just think you have the loud ones that do and, um, and that they kind of set the tone for the rest of the school. Well, part, um, so, yeah. part of the article, they talk about, you know, new Trier graduates, quote, that they were getting feedback that students were going out into the world and finding they could handle coursework but weren't that great at handling people of color because they weren't reflected in their classrooms or the school except for the janitorial, lunchroom, and security staff. You know, I, um, it's not like they share those, all of those surveys necessarily with us or the sample sizes or how much. And that sounds to me more kind of like activist students that were speaking up than perhaps anything that's truly representative of most new tier students graduating. I also think that that's, it's, it is, it is quite sad. I mean, I'll agree if somebody's going to a college campus and cannot talk to somebody who doesn't look like them like that that's quite frankly a failure on that family. They need to get out more. Um, and I think that the mm. school, you know, it's fine if they want to have a diversity in the curriculum and, you know, no one's against that. Um, I, I just think that there's a question of, is the school the one that needs to take full responsibility for making that happen? How are new Trier kids? I wonder if this has been surveyed. How are they uh, dealing with people with whom they disagree regardless of their color? <laughs> yeah. Right, which is really perhaps, um, you know, what school should be about is the, you know, debate of ideas. You know, it's hard to say. I think it probably varies. Um, I think that there is more of a culture that leans left. I do think that conservative kids probably feel it's a little bit harder to speak up um, because of the tenor that's set in the school. And so, um, you know, I think, I think that's why that, that statement was important to pass, because it was kind of putting down a marker um, that said that the school did value the diversity of perspective. And so, um, you know, slowly but surely, we do hear stories um, of, of, you know, a debate class that, that presented the 1619 Project and 1776 Unite side by side. Um, so there are little, you know, glimmers of hope, and we hope to see more of that. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the whole, like, uh, they, they weren't ready to deal with people of color. I mean, it's, uh, it's such a asinine statement, just generally speaking. Um, and uh, particularly when I don't think the racial demographics of Nutrier, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the racial demographics of Nutrier has changed very much over the last several generations. It's not like it's now, you know, uh, proportionally representative of the larger populace when it comes to uh, race. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's right. I don't know offhand what the actual demographics are. Um, so, so I'm not sure I could speak to that, uh, but you know, yeah, just the, the idea that people cannot go out and relate to people. I just think that you would, you subscribe to a certain worldview if you believe that to be true. Um, and then I think there's the rest of the world that largely, you know, by all indications, if you look at, um, you know, interracial marriage and other, other, uh, measures that I think, I think our country is getting better at that, not worse, but if you were to believe I think a lot of this rhetoric um, at the school and, you know, some of the initiatives that they do that we are, you know, that we're going backwards. And, you know, I don't think that's true. Um, and if anything, I think one of the important points is, is that there's an opportunity cost to all of the time that they spend on these types of issues that are not academically oriented, that are not including test scores. Um, and, you know, which at Nutria, you have a lot of involved families that are going to really be um, keeping, you know, their kids on task and, and, you know, helping them succeed. But 
in other schools where they try to push these types of, of you know, it's really a political ideology at the end of the day, um, kids really suffer, um, and, it, and it takes a consequence. And a lot of times, these are not kids that can afford to necessarily fall back. She is Beth Feely. She's an advisor to the Woodson Center and involved with the 1776 Unites Project, uh, also runs New Trier Neighbors, as we were talking about. And you can catch her podcast with Andrew Gutman, another father who got tired of a elite school in New York City and um, is speaking out to the Brearley School, as we were talking about. Beth and Andrew Gutman do a podcast at ricochet.com. Beth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You've made the switch and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The United States has just 25 days of diesel supply, the lowest since 2008, according to the Energy Information Administration. This is Bloomberg reporting. At the same time, the four-week rolling average of uh, distillates supplied, a proxy for demand, rose to its high seasonal level since 07. The National Economic Council Director, Biden's Brian Deese, his top MMT guy, said the diesel inventories are unacceptably low and all options are on the table. Oh, oh good. All options are on the table, except uh, changing from this disastrous course of being dependent on foreign oil and not producing our own. Well, you, you, right, of these, these zero emissions fantasies. Uh, Holman Jenkins writing the Wall Street Journal about them. The latest report from New York State's grid operator is a masterclass in everything wrong with the Western world's approach to climate change. That is, everything wrong with an approach that consists of throwing money at green business interests in defiance of any practical consideration. If you think something else is going on, such as abating climate change, think again. In fact, uh, there's a story out yesterday, the wildfires in California have eliminated all of the emissions reductions of the last several years in California. Yeah, and I don't know if you heard this while you're gone. Chicago's going to end natural gas hookups for new homes and businesses. So you have to pay what's called uh, a hookup tax if you want to use, you know, things like uh, gas stove or refrigerators and appliances. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what are you supposed to put solar panels around your house? It's not going to work. Illinois is going from energy independent as a state to energy dependent by the end of the decade because of Pritzker's. Stag green stagflationary policies that mirror Newsom's. How could you build a house without a heating system or appliances? So they're going to charge you a fossil fuel mitigation fee and add that to the construction costs. If and, you know you want to have home comforts. And and this is just this all of this is just fantasy. This is just you know creative writing masquerading as policy. So in New York, as going back to Jenkins. To meet a legislated goal of emissions-free electricity by 2040, New York will need up to 45 gigawatts of what it delicately calls DEFRs, dispatchable emissions-free resources. 
Not only is that more than the state's current total of generating capacity, 37 gigawatts, these DFERS, which are carbon-free like wind and solar, yet not interruptible like wind and solar, don't exist. They don't exist. And they have no prospect of existing in the next decade. But we're going to put our energy needs, we're going to be completely dependent on this coming to pass for the energy needs of the world's largest economy. Starting very much sooner than 2040, writes Jenkins, New York's real choice will be third world electricity reliability versus paying fossil fuel operators large fees to keep their plants up and running in a highly inefficient part-time fashion. Yes, worldwide investments in renewables in the past two years have exceeded investment in fossil fuels. Supposedly, this proves fossil fuels on the way out. No, it proves fossil fuels are better are a better deal, consuming less investment to meet their share of the world's growing power needs. Fantasy policies in places like Illinois and California and New York. Dangerous policies when it comes to not just operating the world's largest economy, but also providing for much of the world's security, including our own. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano for our weekly conversation. Lieutenant Jim, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, and I, you know, I always have to point out, I think, the, the crowning data, which is for the world to reach net zero, China would have to take 50% of its GDP and invest it in green energy. And that's not going to happen. So, you know, this is fantasy science. This is what happens when you filter science through a political lens and this happens all the time. This is just a, 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 a problem for leftists. I mean, this has been happening since science was invented, is you have an outcome, and then you filter the science through that to give you the answer that you want, and you ignore the fact that the science doesn't actually add up. You remember the old joke is, is, is you know, the, the two uh, scientists arguing, the guy, is, he goes, well, of course it'll work in practice, but will it work in theory? I mean, this is this nonsense. <laughs> they have perfect theory, but it but it conflicts with reality. And their response to that is, well, there's something wrong with reality. There's something wrong with you, Dan. Yeah. And Amy and other people that just don't understand. And and oh, but by the way, I mean, just speaking of China and fantasy, the national security strategy document the Biden administration released, which which includes a lot of comment on China. Uh, including uh, very hopeful language about working with China on climate, pandemic threats, non-proliferation, countering illicit and illegal narcotics, and macroeconomic issues. So all of those things, there's no chance we're going to be able to work with that. We're completely antagonistic. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is what happens when you, when you have everything is based on what you want the world to look like and not what the world actually look like and here's the reality if you only and look what do i know all we have is 30 years of data which is pretty clear and if you want to look at the countries that have the cleanest water the cleanest air the most rapid uh, uh emissions reductions in the world 
shockingly, you find that the more economically free a country is, the better an environmental steward it is. Mm-hmm. Now, and I don't mean rich, because China's obviously rich, but they're, a, they're the world's leading polluter. But countries that embrace economic freedom not only breed, you know, breed prosperity, they breed responsibility because people aren't stupid. They use their money in smart ways to make their lives better. And so the, the, and they the take, reality and, and they is, take care of their own stuff. You know, private property take, rights kind of important. Right. And so, so the reality is, is if you want countries to deal with climate change, that, and that's probably through mitigation and new technologies and other things, the answer is make them richer. What Biden and everybody else is doing is they're impoverishing us. And they're impoverishing us at the same time they're allowing economies that want to destroy us to grow and prosper. How does this make sense in any way but, but a Netflix you know, series where you're, everybody's going to die by season two? Uh, I want also, too, I mean, something to take note of. It's not getting much play from the D.C. press corps. Gee, I wonder why. These massive protests that are going on in Paris and Berlin and Brussels in advance of the winter because of high prices for energy, in part. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, I mean, I think the reality is, is Russia, I mean, excuse me, Europe's going to get through the winter because they've stocked by a ton of gas. But... Um, but the price is going to be really high. And, and the reason for that is, is because they didn't diversify their energy supplies to begin with. And the reality, and then they go on and said, look, because they're caught, right? There is no way that solar and wind is ever going to do this. So they go, that's okay. We're going to buy gas now. It's a bridge to the future. <laughs> but their plan is to still to phase this out by, by 2035. Mm-hmm. Now, look, nobody is going to buy invest in infrastructure that you basically say, well, we're going to use it for five years and then we're not going to need you anymore. Pipelines don't pay back in five years. So they're still, they're still wedded to this nonsense and they can't do this every winter. I mean, they can stockpile for one winter and peak prices and the world isn't going to end. Um, but they can't do this year in and year out. Yeah, but the German government's going to pay for everyone's heat for the month of December. They also can't do that for every year. No, exactly. <laughs> Eventually they're going to have to pay for that themselves. The only the only way to do this, to really get through the the, the twin challenges, well, the, the, the three body problem, right? You want economic growth, um, you want to deal with climate change, uh, and you want a, abundant, affordable, dependable energy, and and that and the answer actually is to go all in on gas and oil, and and oil all of the above. There's nothing wrong with renewables. There's nothing wrong with nuclear. But none of these is a silver bullet. And if you maximize production of all of them, you're going to maximize wealth. That wealth is going to allow you to mitigate and adapt new and alternate technologies in time. And that's going to get humanity the future. Now, that's worked. that has worked since the dawn of time and since the first guy crawled out of a cave. But no, Joe Biden has a better idea. Instead of, instead of what is, has shepherded humanity through its entire existence, really smart people like Joe Biden, are going to just tell us all what to do because that has always worked out so well. Um, the uh, Heritage Foundation uh, produces this uh, report on the readiness of America's military. And and I wonder, I mean, I, I will go through this as globally as you want, but I wonder how the energy policy of this administration plays into 
the readiness of the military. We're talking about this as a national security issue in addition to an economic one. Well, in two different ways. Um, one, of course, is the overall economy and high energy prices in addition to everything else are, 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 are hammering that. And the problem is, is look, uh, you know, you heard this phrase, you know, do you want guns or butter? Well, you know, people who want to live and survive want guns and butter. They want an economy that thrives and they want an adequate military. And it's very, very difficult to have an adequate military when you're dumping trillions of dollars into unproductive economic activity that is not only, you know, restricting growth, it's fueling inflation, making everybody's life miserable and everything else. Um, and the other is, is this massive distraction because we, they've got the Department of Defense running around writing climate plans in, a, in addition to hosting drag queen shows and, uh, you know, gay, gay pride parades. And, and all of this is, has produced the rating has. We've been doing this for nine years. We grade the military in exactly the same way. It's completely objective. We use the same data every year, year in and year out. Um, it is the worst grade that we've ever given the U.S. military this year. And develop, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a couple of reasons specific to, to energy that I was talking about, but the, the overall, um, or maybe do, do it this way, the, the most concerning uh, deterioration of the military in terms of the grading, the most, well, I mean, where are the categories? I mean, it's really, yeah, I mean, it's kind of really um, two parts to it. One, of course, is Biden hasn't produced a defense budget in two years. He hasn't produced a defense strategy um, and, and so we've just sent, while we're spending literally trillions of dollars on everything from $20,000 to host drag queen shows in Ecuador um, to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for universities to study whatever. Um, we've had flat military spending. We have had inflation 8%. So essentially we've cut, it's been, you know, we've had a defense cut. Um, and the other thing is, um, all of the value that we achieved in the Bush def in the, the in the uh, Trump defense buildup, you know, Trump put money into the most critical things that Obama had ignored: training and readiness. Which, of course, that's the first thing you want to invest in because if you got to send somebody tomorrow, it doesn't matter if you're going to build a tank for him ten years from now. Um, and that was all good, and, and we actually saw a climb in in, in uh, defense capability um, during the Trump years. But you know, training and readiness stops the, the minute, the value of that stops the minute you end. So, you know, like the guy, that, as soon as they go into the off season and they're not working out, they're not as, you know, fit as they were, at, you know, when they hit the Super Bowl. Um, that's that's resulted in, in essentially wiping out the entire advances of the Trump years. And we've gone into a rapid decline between not investing in training and readiness and also these all these other distractions in the military. And now we have recruiting problems because nobody wants to join the military because nobody wants to go to a gay pride parade. And, um, and that's that's what's got us where we are. And and, and when you say uh, the military is is rated as weak, um, translate that. That means our capacity is what or our lack of capacity. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, you can't just look at what the military has because it matters who you're competing against. It's just like when, if you're going to the world series, it's not just, you know, how good are your batters and pitchers, how good are the other guys? So what we look at is not just military capability and capacity and training and readiness, but we also look at the people that we might have to fight and the places where we might have to fight and allies that we might have to fight, you know, fight with and the infrastructure. There. And we add all three of those together and that gives you the composite score. And, Fundamentally, what you have to do to be trained and ready 
is to be able to fight in two places at once. Because if you think about this, you know, the United States can fight in one place and then the rest of the world can say, oh, well, America is distracted. Let me go do something over here. And that's kind of the nightmare scenario. It's like the, the guy that locks the front door and leaves the back door open. And so the burglar just comes in the back door. Um, if you think about right what we're doing today, um, we're not fighting in Ukraine, but we're providing them with weapons, a lot of logistical support, we're training, we're deploying troops to, to Europe for deterrence. What would happen today if something happened in Taiwan? And if we can't do two of those things at the same time, then we lack deterrence. Because remember, none of this is about fighting the war. The whole idea is, this is the whole idea of peace through strength. Through strategic and conventional, strategic nuclear missile defense and conventional forces, the idea is to convince the other guys that, you know, you can do a lot of nasty things. You can do disinformation, you know, you can call me names, you can pick on little countries, but you are never going to start a big war against the United States because you're scared to death that you will die. And that's what peace through strength is. And that's what we don't have. He's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano of the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Busted. Tickets are on sale now for Freedom Summit 2022. Get yours today at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. As governor, my administration will oppose mandating COVID vaccines for grade school, college, and employment. We all know the mandate candidate, J.B. Pritzker, will force it on your kids because he thinks the government knows better than parents. There's a real uh, difference of opinion between the two candidates for governor, the incumbent who's leading the nation in emergency declarations, and State Senator Darren Bailey, uh, per that statement, per the issue that is now being tackled by every state, which is, are you going to make COVID part of the uh, vaccine protocol for K through 12? Yeah, in order for kids to attend school. Florida, Wyoming, Missouri, Utah, Iowa, Tennessee, Alabama, and Virginia have said that they will not require COVID-19 vaccines for kids. And we tried to get Pritzker on the issue on Thursday. He ran from the only reporter that showed up at the event. And then Friday, he had no events. Today, he's having to get out the vote rally all across Illinois. And guess what? Teachers, uh, teach, Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten is going to be with them in Peoria today. Oh, wonderful. I wonder what her take is on this. But, yeah, he he refuses to answer the question. And, uh, you know, we have an election coming up in less than 15 days, and parents want to know. Uh, they got one in Florida, too. Ron DeSantis up for re-election. And we're pleased now to be joined by his Surgeon General, the state of Florida's Surgeon General, of course, and uh, our friend, we knew him way back when, when he was uh, out at UCLA doing this work and before he became a lightning rod for the D.C. Press Corps. Uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo. Dr. Ladapo, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks to, thanks for having me, and, and it's great to speak with you again. Yeah, it's great to talk to you as well. Congratulations on the, uh, the new gig. Uh, we've been watching you from afar, and uh, you and uh, the governor there have been taking some heat for... I don't know, following the data and science, which is, I thought, what we were supposed to do. Yeah, heat is is basically what you can expect when you don't line up with these silly and often very harmful mainstream perspectives. And we've been having this conversation for, I think, 
probably almost two years now. Maybe it was it's been that long since I first appeared on on your radio show. Yeah, and so the the decision that you made, uh, and whether well, DeSantis made in consultation with you, to as Amy just mentioned, be one of the states that's saying no, we're not making COVID part of the vaccine protocol for K through twelve kids. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could even take any bit of credit for that, but that is definitely all the governor in terms of the clarity on the the importance of making that statement and just making it known that the distrust that parents feel, it validates it. His statement validates it. I certainly support parents in the fact that they, very few of them, have run out to get these COVID vaccines for their little kids. And and it's just, it's not something that's been picked up. And when it has been picked up, most of the time it's been because of force or fear. So coercion has been the main tactic. And what kind of public health campaign is that? Yeah, but this isn't a high-risk group. And we knew that, you know, years into this, and yet still they're pushing these vaccines. Why are they doing it? Is this pressure from the pharmaceutical companies, from Pfizer and Moderna? Or what do you think is behind it? I mean, truly only God knows. I know what's not behind it is a sincere interest in the health of children or in public health. Because it, it's not even that they're just low risk. It's not even that they're just not high risk. And these are, at this point in the pandemic, they were already extraordinarily low risk. But at this point in the pandemic, you can't, it is so low risk for children that you are, you are almost, you're virtually bound to cause harm by providing them with these products. So it, it, it is a mystery to me. It remains a mystery to me why it's being, pushed as it is. And by the way, we're also an outlier. You know, countries in Scandinavia, other European countries, they're not doing this. People think this is normal. This is abnormal. It doesn't make sense. I wonder if it has something to do with Pfizer uh, quadrupling the price of the vaccine from about 110 to 130 dollars per dose after the current purchase program expires. That's what Pfizer executive Angela Lucan said uh, last week. Boy, there's a lot of money at stake, and uh, big pharma has big influence on Capitol Hill. So the combination of Covidians having to sort of justify their position and uh, and what they've done over the last three years, plus the financial interests of perhaps allied companies like Pfizer, uh, maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, that resonates. That resonates, Dan. And you think about it, it is definitely the case that they have, they've, they're so invested, right? They've been, it's so severe that even when this myocarditis, let's take that for an example. So, yes. There is, there's been finally acknowledgement of myocarditis, but the problem is actually almost certainly much worse. So there's something called subclinical myocarditis. So people are pretending that the only myocarditis that counts are the folks that end up in the hospital. But for each one of the people that end up in the hospital, there are at least two studies now that indicate that there are probably 50, 100, maybe, maybe even a higher order of magnitude times greater number of people who have evidence of some cardiac injury or inflammation after these vaccines. And that's a common clinical situation. So it's, it's, it's considered subclinical myocarditis by some doctors. And but that, the, that is clearly unsafe. 
But the investment, I mean, they've been screaming safe and effective so hard and for so long that they basically are tying their hands such that they have to essentially deny data. And this is another, so that what you said resonates, the idea that they just have to do this. And and the uh, what you described, that's the basis for uh, your uh, announcement about uh, vaccinations for men 18 to 39 uh, not recommending him. It may be so that, you know, we looked at the numbers and so the, the analysis is imperfect. There's there are different biases that bias the estimate of risk up and also bias the estimate of risk down. So this is a preliminary analysis. But the only group of all the groups that we looked at that showed this very high rate of increase in cardiac death was the same group that we know has a markedly higher risk of heart inflammation of myocarditis so it 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 truly is a mystery to me how people and again it it sort of all ties in with the same thing whether it's pushing these vaccines on children or pushing these vaccines on young men at this point in the pandemic the risk is so low and compared to the risk of an adverse event it, it doesn't make sense. It's not sensible policy, and that is the reason why I issued that policy. And since you've come forward, I mean, what has your life been like? Because you're getting hit by the left pretty hard here. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for, you know, even when I first met Dan, that's how it was. They were, they were hitting me because they didn't like the fact that I was calling out the fact that the clinical trials didn't show a substantial benefit from, with masks or that the passports were not going to be effective because it was already looking as though the, vac- the virus was spreading even among vaccinated people, so we're supporting the passports, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lane that I've become accustomed to, but what folks can count on me for, as has been the case always throughout the pandemic, is to tell the truth as well as I know it, as clearly as I know it, and to not... And to have no agenda related to manipulation or trying to get people to do certain things, which everyone can obviously see has been the objective of the federal government, the CDC, and it's shameful and it's harmful. Yeah, no, I mean, you've been um, one of the uh, clear and even-tempered voices at Wall Street Journal editorials long before you became Florida State Surgeon General. Um, and and it's, it's remarkable that, that people just can't, appreciate sort of a textured view and some humility too. Well, here's what we know or we think we know. Here's what we don't know. We're still trying to figure out. And my sense is, I mean, in this, we, we know this from previous pandemics too. We won't have a real handle on the cost benefit analysis. Uh, we won't have a real handle on the extent of the adverse outcomes for probably years to come, right? People actually, overall, yes, but I think we'll actually going to know more sooner and frankly we should have already known a lot more already so i brought up the issue of subclinical myocarditis so far there's been a study in thailand that found a rate of around three percent among so three in every hundred adolescent boys for this issue of evidence of heart damage and now there's a study in switzerland that looks at healthcare workers and they find a rate of around three percent also so this is, and this is, so we're talking about, so three in a hundred is the equivalent of, you know, 300,
hundred in ten thousand, whereas the rates of clinical myocarditis for people getting hospitalized are thought to be more in the range of two to three per per ten thousand. So these are these are this is research that doesn't take long to do that could have been done even a year ago if people had just taken the effort to ask the very obviously relevant questions. But as you know, and as fortunately more Americans are realizing, all the politics of the pandemic and the coercion and the agendas that don't have anything to do with health and public health have driven out the oxygen for asking very important questions. I'm talking about men. We can talk about women and these changes in menstrual cycles. We could talk about changes in sperm counts, and that's been documented and published. We could talk about the recent study that was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association that showed evidence of these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in breast milk. These are not trivial issues, and we need to have a better understanding of why they're happening. Well, what's your recommendation for pregnant women, though? Because that seems to be up in the air. And it is up in the air. And, and you know, I think it's important to remember that pregnant women were excluded from the clinical trials. But literally, as soon as the clinical trials were complete, you had obstetricians, gynecologists going on television telling pregnant women to take these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. So there's a mismatch between understanding and recommendations. Since that time, we know a little bit more now. And, but there's still a lot that is un, un, that's unknown. So I think really the best advice I can give to pregnant women is to, one, talk to doctors that you trust. Like a doctor who is telling you that yes, 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 is, is not a doctor I think that you can easily trust because that type of recommendation is not based on, on a strong foundation of data. And I think there's a lot to be said about personal intuition, too. And I think that that should be part of the, of the um, that should be a factor that women take into consideration when they make their decisions. Do, do you have any lines of communication with the White House? Do you talk to Rochelle Walensky, Dr. Walensky? Do you talk to Dr. Ashish Jha, uh, you know, in, within the upper reaches of the administration when it comes to COVID policy? Do they communicate with you? That's the best of my knowledge. We've had some communication from members of CDC, and, but honestly, I am not particularly interested in, in speaking with them. I have no problem with speaking with them. I think actually the people who I most, most want to hear and receive my message are the people of the country, because the, the, the leaders, the individuals you just mentioned, part of the way that they've been able to get away with just some of the unconscionable things that they've done, including all the all the really all the falsehoods about the math, the school closures, and all that stuff with kids. Part of the way they've been able to get it, get away with it, is then through basically taking advantage of where the public is just weaker, yeah. weaker with public understanding, weaker with clarity about you know how to move forward when there's a lot of fear in the atmosphere and environment and. And so the public is the people, is the, is the group of people that I really want to communicate with. Because I think that's going to be the source of the change. Because it's not going to come from those guys. They are way too invested. And you know, the lies and the falsehoods and the propaganda are stacked way too high. They've got way too much to lose. 
but they've already shown that their interests are not the public in terms of the first priority. Yeah, I think that's good insight. He is Dr. Joseph Ladapo. Uh, if you want more of his insights, get his new book, Transcend Fear, A Blueprint for Mindful Leadership in Public Health. Transcend Fear, Blueprint for Mindful Leadership in Public Health from Dr. Joseph Ladapo, the Surgeon General for the State of Florida. Dr. Ladapo, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy with uh, the election two weeks from tomorrow. Do a little st- stop, look, and listen. Uh, how you feel about uh, governor's race, other statewide races, congressional races, legislative races. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. Uh, Governor Spaulding got a uh, pro forma endorsement, but, of course, the press corps makes a big deal about it. I wonder if anybody in the press corps will have an opportunity to inquire with the former president about uh, Pritzker's purge law and whether he agrees with it. This is what... Former President Obama had to say. Illinois will always hold a special place in my heart. You believed in me before anyone else did. And you believed in J.B. Pritzker, too. He's made Illinois a national leader on so many issues we care about. Raising the minimum wage, protecting voting rights, cracking down on the sale of illegal guns. J.B. also signed a landmark law protecting a woman's right to choose. That's why I'm proud to cast my ballot to re-elect J.B. Pritzker. Uh, is that voter fraud? Is he still an Illinois resident? Somebody can well, check on that. He did. They did fly in for a few hours and voted and then flew off. They didn't hmm. stay in. Did they even did they sell that house? He's right uh, about uh, J.B. Pritzker putting us in uh, the pole position on a number of issues, uh, including, uh, as we found out uh, last week from our friends at Wirepoint, number one in the nation when it comes to unemployment. Illinois has the highest unemployment rate in the nation. Does that square with all these turnaround commercials you see from J.B. Pritzker? We have the worst credit rating in the nation, so we're number one when it comes to the worsts. Worst credit rating, worst unemployment, highest combined state and local tax burden, and he wanted to make it higher, except you rejected his graduated income tax proposal. That's the J.B. record, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. That's not a question. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro. Answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And when it comes to uh, the purge law, which, by the way, as Mike Scott's reported, the cases have been now consolidated. 58 states' attorneys, 58 of the state's 102 county states' attorneys, filed suits individually. Their suits have been consolidated and will be heard in a Kankakee County will be heard by Kinkiki County Judge. 58 states' attorneys. That's more than half for those of you doing math in your head. And 100 of 102 who opposed the purge law. That's also more than half. <laughs> that includes two dozen Democrats. 58 filed suits saying the law is unconstitutional. They want a declaration that the law is unconstitutional. They want it enjoined from implementation, Jan 1. And there's good reason why they do. We did a little look-see on this. You know, you've heard from 
Jim Glasgow. You've heard from uh, other states' attorneys. You've heard from uh, Gary Caruana up in Winnebago County, the sheriff there, and other sheriffs about the number of prisoners that will be released from the county jails were this to be implemented. So we looked at this. There's about about 17,500 inmates in county jails in Illinois. And based on the estimates you're getting from county state's attorneys, who have a pretty good idea what their jail population is, as do the sheriffs, for obvious reasons. You know, uh, one is in charge of housing them, and the other is in charge of bringing them to trial, in most cases. You're talking about almost 9,000 inmates will be released on January 1. 9,000? Oh, he keeps, Pritzker keeps saying, oh, no, not one's going to be released. And, and if it's, These uh, are just right-wing extremists. Don't and if he does, that. it's on the prosecutors. And Jim Glasgow, and I've got a commercial up to that point, he was on this show, and he said that's just obviously not true. That's just obviously not true, and it has nothing to do with the prosecutors and everything to do with Pritzker's purge law, the because statute. The prosecutors have to follow the letter of the law, and that's what the law says, unless they— Unless they, you know, amend it, that they said that would happen in the veto session after the November election. But man up. Like, not, if you're going to make changes, it's, it's, it's what are you going to make? It's not going to happen. No, it's not. You've heard from the leading lights of the left, like House Speaker Chris Welch. They are champions of this. They are cheerleading. Cam Buckner, state rep who's running for governor, cheerleading this. The Black Caucus is not walking this back. And so no one else will either. You're deluding yourself as much as those who are deluding themselves and saying, oh, this is just about letting nonviolent offenders out. Listen to the state's attorneys. They're Democrats. The Democrat, the one featured in my ads, all Democrats. Uh, Justin Hood, who wrote the letter on behalf of the Illinois State Attorneys Association for the 100 of the 102 that opposed it. He's a Democrat. Jim Glasgow and Will County is a Democrat. And the myth of the nonviolent offender, really good piece by Devon Kurtz, over at City Journal. He's a public safety policy director at the Cicero Institute. Uh, The hard truth for criminal justice reformers, and by the way, he is one. The hard truth is that violent offenses are far more prevalent among America's prisoners. At the state level, where 9 in 10 prisoners are incarcerated, almost 60% of inmates committed violent crimes. 143,000 people convictions related to sexual assault, 155,000 homicide. Combined with 146 for all drug crime, drug crimes related. And by the way, just because it's only a drug crime doesn't mean that there are not more serious offenses that you have previously been charged with that you may be charged with because, you know, for example, you're a known gangbanger. The idea that America's mass incarceration is a result of drug crimes is absurd, writes Devon Kurtz. Oh, by the way, for the criminal justice reformers, and that is a misnomer. They are not reformers. They're lawless ideologues. They're defund, decarcerate ideologues. America's incarceration problem relates directly to its violent crime problem. The nation's incarceration rate is four to six times higher than that of its high-income peers in Europe and Asia, Oh, that's really concerning until you note that, oh, by the way, America's homicide rate is seven and a half times higher than those same peer nations in Europe and Asia. So, uh, again, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish 
you know, people could be released on their own recognizance for carjackings and kidnappings and second-degree murder, and they're going to show up for court on their own good, good because of their own good character, and they're not going to commit other crimes while their trial oh, date no. is pending. I wish that were the case. It is not the case. You're seeing it play out in New York right now. They've got a year and a half worth of data, and they're— no cash bail law is much less lax than Pritzker's. Doesn't go nearly as far as Pritzker's purge law. I mean, 9,000 inmates released on January 1, 7,600 in Cook County alone. You don't think that's going to have an impact on public safety? Uh, do you not look at a, a news outlet? And I'm not talking about the ones I'm affiliated with. Pick one, anyone. This is not a close call. And uh, as I've said, the civilization is on the ballot. You vote to reelect Pritzker. I don't care what your position is on abortion or green energy. You vote to reelect J.B. Pritzker. You are voting for end times, as Jim Glasgow says. You are voting for lawlessness. People will be murdered and maimed who otherwise wouldn't have been if you had the simple act of holding violent criminals over for trial, in addition to the other absurd elements of the Safety Act that put police even further on their hind legs than they already are. I mean, everything that's happening in the city is going to come to the suburbs and the rest of the state. Well, the- I mean, again, I mean, we had an 18-year-old who was shot by an off-duty Chicago police officer. He and two others tried to carjack her on Thursday. Well, guess what? He was out on bond for allegedly driving another hijacked car last August. Goes on and on and on. 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 DuPage uh, projection, uh, based on the state's attorney's estimates, is more than 500 inmates would be released. Same in Lake, more than 600 in Will, 300 and and some, 350-some-odd in Kane, 275 in McHenry. Go on and on and on. You don't think that's going to have an impact? These are all moms who stole diapers for their babies. I don't think so. Nobody thinks so, except J.B. Pritzker. Tom in Richmond, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. I uh, I received in the mail a little 5 by 10 inch leaflet. One side says Lake County Gazette as a meter pointing to false. Yeah. The other side has had these quotes from some radio station in Peoria. Like they're the vial of uh, truth saying convicted criminals currently in jail will not be released. The Safety Act does not contain non-detainable offenses. This is pure propaganda. Mm-hmm. And anything, any money you have left to send out uh, a response to this with quotes from the state's attorneys and, and the number you just listed with the, what was it, 9,000 that are going to be released? Yeah. This makes my blood boil that this kind of stuff is getting. And it's from the Democrat Party of Illinois. Oh, yeah. No, I'm very familiar with it. Thanks for the call, Tom. Um, and that has been put out into the ether and will continue to be till November 8th. Uh, multiple commercials running now, newspapers, radio ads, billboards, teletown halls, every digital platforms, every communication channel that is available has been filled. Maybe not with the $145 million that J.B. Prisker is spending, but with a significant enough amount of 
money to drive home the message to anybody who's paying attention and interested to understand it. I, I mean, I... And if you want control of your children's lives on another, you know, ancillary issue, this whole... He will not discuss whether or not he's going to put COVID-19 vaccinations on child immunization records so that your kid could go to school. Yeah, somebody's... And that's a big deal. And then also the question, too, well, if he does pass it, does that mean an annual one? Or is it similar to the measles where you're one shot and you're done or chicken pox? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions. And he ran, ran from the media. Just like having to pass to the pass the safety act to find out what's in it. You have to vote for J.B. Pritzker to find out what he's going to do. With your school, with your kids. As somebody uh, texted me, schools are closed. He locks the schools and he opens the jails. That's the J.B. Pritzker record after four years. That's good. Colleen in Plainfield. Hi, Dan and Amy. Um, you guys had a caller, I don't know, a month or two ago that literally haunts me because he was talking about some relative or something that was passing a petition to, um, I think it was against the Safety Act. And he got into a discussion with him about, well, you're not going to vote for Pritzker because he's kind of like the master, you know, involved in this. Do you remember that caller? And he couldn't flip him. Um, yeah. Yeah. This morning? Oh, he yeah. he he couldn't he couldn't flip he couldn't his friend. Him. Yeah, right. Couldn't flip his friend, and the friend was totally against the safety act, but was all in on Pritzker. Anyway, right. I had my own little experience with that. Walking precincts in Plainfield this weekend, I was um, walking with a state rep candidate. I was walking with a judge candidate, and it was great because I had two very knowledgeable people who could who could take questions about the safety act right at the door. Two, we encountered two first responders. The first one kept his, I, I know, because I have the list. I know he's a softie. Um, but I thought the way this guy was talking about the safety act, you, you wouldn't believe it. And in the end, I don't think he's with us. I, I think he, he was just kept his stuff very close to the vest. Even though he was saying how it impacts his entire squad. The other first responder was detailing all he does is drugs. All he does is respond to overdoses. This is closer. He lives out here, but he, he works closer to the city. This guy was definitely with us, but he started talking about pensions and how he can't totally trust the Republicans on pensions. And I thought this state it is just dunzos because here's people on the front lines who are, they're maybe moving, but they're still they're still entrenched. I don't know. I just wanted to share the, that on the ground. Uh, yeah, thanks for that, Colleen, because I had a, co- a, a conversation with a firefighter over the weekend, too, and it's infuriating. What he said. It's infuriating to listen to the, oh, uh, well, I can't trust Republicans. Uh, you know, these, these firefighters, a, a lot of tough talk. A, a lot of we're with you. Uh, I can't trust the Republicans on pensions. What the hell is wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with any firefighter or cop who says that? Are you that dense? Do you not have the ability to listen and process information? I'm talking to you, firefighters and cops, who give me that pension wrap. What the hell is wrong with you? Everybody. And I've been talking about this for 20 years. Every single free market reform type like me, or the Illinois Policy Institute or Wirepoint has said the same damn thing about your precious defined benefit pensions. So lift it up. 
My God, your the safety, your safety, and the safety of your men and women you work with is on the line. What the hell is wrong with you? No one has said, no one, that there'll be any clawing back of benefits earned for anyone. What does it take to penetrate the granite between the ears of these rank and file? I understand the leadership are political hacks and they're transactional. I get it. You will get the benefits you earned. You should because the state made a promise. It created a reliance. That's a contractual obligation, even if it was a bad promise. It's the right thing to do. Do you hear me? That's the position. Now, on a go-forward basis, since, oh, by the way, the people you trust so much have your pension funds at less than 25% funded, you clowns, death-spiraling pensions. And, by the way, when you're not getting 7 and 10 and 12% return in the market, the spiral increases in pace. Wait to see what it looks like when the COVID cash washes away and you see the market's down 25% this year. On a prospective basis, we have to have a conversation about time not yet put in, work not yet done, and what a benefits package should reasonably look like. Go ahead and pass your Amendment 1. Go ahead and pass it. It, The constitutional provisions, state statute, they're not suicide packs. They are not invulnerable to math. So go ahead. You don't want to have a perspective conversation. That's what you say. That's why I can't trust. Nonsense. You should be ashamed of yourself. Any cop or firefighter who you know says that should be ashamed of themselves, and you should tell them. It's the most ridiculous, ridiculous cop-out, pun intended, when it comes to voting for these people who've destroyed everything in this state, including the stability of your precious pensions. What the hell is wrong with you? Melissa in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, I mean, Dan, I think you've um, really offered some very effective arguments. However, um, the ground game of the Republican Party in DuPage County and Northern Wilk County, in particular Ann Stava Murray's seat, has been abysmal and pathetic. It would have been so easy to turn over multiple high-profile seats in Naperville. And these candidates have not been given the support on social media or on the ground. And you can argue and argue and argue, and Jim Glasgow can get up on his podium and talk, but if you don't effectively market your candidates and get out the word, it's worthless. Thanks for the call, Melissa. And if you want to run screaming off a cliff, there's no amount of money that can be spent to stop you. If you want to run screaming off a cliff, if you want to ignore all of the data, if you want to not listen to anyone who's actually an expert in their field who knows what they're talking about, especially when it is bipartisan and overwhelming, if you don't want to listen to people, then don't listen to them. What can I tell you? Don't make me do it. I can't stop you. I can't stop you. If I if I give you the jail the key to the jailhouse door and you want to go open it, then go open it. 
James and Schomburg. Dan, you're on fire this morning, brother. You are on fire. You're speaking my language right now. And I wish to God, when the previous caller just mentioned the abysmal uh, campaigning, I want Bailey to win. I want all these people to win. Why don't they, why doesn't Bailey hold a press conference right there in Daily Center today spouting exactly what you said? He can put it his own way. But the passion that you just spoke with is all he needs. He's got to carry the message. The amount of money and the amount of ground game is irrelevant to the message you're carrying. Carry a good message. Speak directly to what you have. We, you have callers on day in, day out. Sean's got him in the afternoon. The caller, just the guests that are speaking are speaking the truth to what is actually happening in the state. Our loved ones, are so, some of our own family, are going to get hurt or killed or maimed. It's going to happen. They're going to shut down the schools again. He's going to start with the vaccine mandates. All Bailey has to do is list all the abhorrent things that J.B. has done while he's been in office. Just list them. He doesn't have to comment on them. Just remind everybody of all the horrific things he did. They, they spent, and police officers, manning the beaches at North Avenue Beach to prevent people from going to the beach. Everybody forgot that? I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And it's in the firefighters you're talking about. I'm in and out of fire stations all the time. And that is the same mantra. And reasonably intelligent people are spouting that garbage about how they can't trust Republicans. They can't trust their friends. It's like the trees constantly voting for the axe because the axe told them because he has a wood handle, he's one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, James. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. See Larry Elder, Brandon Tatum, Alex Berenson, and many more at Freedom Summit Chicago. Tickets available at freedomsummitchicago.com. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Down in Brazil on uh, this week, yesterday, the discussion about the midterms and um, specifically Georgia. I don't know if uh, Stacey Abrams is going to come in. Gonna have has to... she conceded yet from her first gubernatorial race? No, she hasn't. Election but denier. The problem, of course, that she has is Jim Crow 2.0. Oh, that's, right. that's Georgia election law. And, again, the messaging persists. It is. Unfortunately, it is Jim Crow. And, and, and the case How is it, that? It, it's, it's Jim Crow, SB 202, as you well know, allow anyone to challenge the uh, validity of a voter. There are many African-Americans and others, young people especially, who are going out to vote and they're being challenged. You, just, you can just say stuff. It doesn't matter. Because that goes unchallenged. That's one thing that's not challenged. Early voting has hit record pace in Georgia More in than the past two weeks. 291,000 people had voted in, in per, either in person or absentee by Tuesday evening mm-hmm. of last week. That's a 75% increase over the same time in the 2018 midterm. Yeah, but sure, there's voter suppression going on. Mm -hmm. And a 3.3% rise from the second day of early voting in a presidential year. 
uh, where, of course, midterms rarely match the enthusiasm of presidential contests, thus the 75% increase over 2018 at this time, 3.3% increase over 2020 at this time. It is Jim Crow 2.0. Why? Because we say it is. Because corporate America said it was when they passed a law and they moved the All-Star Game to Colorado, which has more restrictions on voting than does Georgia, because we don't have to make sense. Nothing we say has to be true. We have a marketing position. We have a pitch. And we just repeat that pitch. It doesn't matter if the product doesn't live up, or in this case, down to the pitch. And this is what they have in the closing two weeks is racism, save our democracy, and, of course, abortion. Although uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, she was on Face the Nation. You know, all the heavyweights are on the Sunday talkies trying to marshal the troops. It's not it's not just about abortion. We have an economy, too, she found out. Well, on the issues that voters tell CBS News are important to them, abortion ranks number seven. Up top, economy, inflation, crime, immigration. Was it a miscalculation to believe that the momentum from striking down Roe versus Wade was going to help Democrats? Uh, Why not talk more about these issues around the economy? Well, I can just say this. Uh, Nobody ever... The elections are about the future. They're about uh, the economy. Everybody knows that. Nobody said we're doing uh, abortion rather than economy, but it's it's about both. And I can tell you that that issue is very, very uh, provocative and and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, encouraging people to vote. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't see a lot of messaging on all the economic successes of the Biden administration. I see a lot of messaging from federal offices to state offices to local offices on abortion and Trump and threat to democracy and insurrection. So I must be missing their crowing over their accomplishments. I mean, I know in Illinois, Pritzker's doing it, but that's, again, just making stuff up. Worst unemployment of the nation, as we were mentioning earlier this hour. Last, yeah, highest unemployment rate in the nation, worst bond rating in the nation. Oh, but things are swimming, swimmingly well. Oh, they're going very well. Oh, they're going very well. Uh, but they're, they're already coming up with an explanation for what happens when they lose, by the way, too. Of course they are. This from a Washington Post columnist, Amazon Post. Perhaps the best way to understand American politics is an overwhelmingly white coalition facing one that is majority white but includes a lot of people of color. Because white people are likely to be the majority of voters for at least two more decades, America's in trouble. Even though the Democrat Party is completely the province of rich white leftists who use the quote-unquote marginalized populations as mascots. But okay, this is, this is their argument, not mine. Across the country, GOP officials are banning books from public libraries, making it harder for non-Republicans to vote, stripping away black political power, aggressively gerrymandering, censoring teachers and professors, and most importantly, denying the results of legitimate elections. There's not a single aspect of that, not a single clause that is in projection in that statement. It's not as much, uh, uh, he goes on to say, the important, most important story in that is that America has a white voter problem, and there's no sign of it going away anytime soon. So when they lose both chambers on November 8th, that's what, that's what they're going to say. Honkies. Yeah. Honkies. Structural racism. P- 
patriarchal society, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists, semi-fascists. That's what they have. Extremists. Dave Seminara is a former diplomat, author of Footsteps of Federer and Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. Joining us again, Dave, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for having me on the show. What's your What's your handle on, since you are a keen observer of discourse, your handle on the uh, discourse here in the closing weeks of the midterm, to, to the midterms? Well, it's fascinating, you know, living here, living in Florida, being an ex-Chicago and who lives in Florida, we're getting a barrage of election-related uh, stuff in the mail every day, flyers from various candidates, and it, it is interesting to see the tactics that the Democrats are, are using. I get uh, flyers almost every day warning me that Republican candidate X doesn't support ab- uh, abortion rights, even in cases of rape or incest. So, I mean, I cannot tell you how many rape or incest-related abortion brochures I've gotten, you know, in the last month or so. So this is about this is about it, as you pointed out. Really, fear fear mongering is all they've got. They can't run on the economy, which is the issue that people care about the most. So they're gravitating to that sort of thing. I do think that it will work in terms of you know messaging to their base because their base is listening to state-controlled media, which will parrot all of their talking points. Um, but to, to people in the middle and uh, on the right, they're going to get crushed. And I'm, I'm going to be enjoying it. I'm really looking forward to election day, to be honest with you, because I'm feeling more and more confident as we're getting closer here. And I'm, I, I, the drubbing that they so richly deserve is coming very, very soon, and I'm eagerly anticipating it. Well, in those flyers, though, they're lying. I mean, we had two Illinois state rep candidates on who never said that they oppose abortion in case of rape or incest. So anybody can allege anything they want in a lawsuit or in a campaign flyer or in a campaign. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, the, 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 the other thing, too, where Republicans make the mistake on this, pro-lifers, it'd be an offense. I mean, Pritzker, for example, here, and Newsom's the same and Hoko's the same. They're touting abortion on demand, all nine months, taxpayer funded. That is such an insular minority position. And we're just not aggressive enough in say call them out on it. You don't. You have no interest in knowing if your daughter, your minor daughter, is having an invasive surgical procedure. You have no interest in that. Oh, okay. I don't think that's the position of most parents, but that's the position of that's that's the position of the left. You're exactly right. I mean, we have a there's a tremendous number of you know affluent white liberals living in the north and in pockets of the west along the west coast who are extremely, extremely concerned that women in the South uh, will not be able to have late-term abortions anymore. But, <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's, uh, they don't ever, they're never going to be in, you know, Mississippi or Arkansas or any of these other states needing the late-term abortions. So it's, uh, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's really misplaced priorities, isn't it? I mean, I wonder, have any of these people looked at their 401ks lately? I mean, I don't have yes. the, the nerve to even log into my Fidelity account to see what the wreckage of my you know, retirement accounts and my investment accounts. I mean, h- how is you know, late-term abortions or you know, rape and incest-related you know, abortions, which are maybe one-tenth of one percent of all abortions in the country, if that's your top priority, you know, you're, just, you're watching too much state-controlled media? Yeah. Dave, don't open it up. I did, and I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. It's yeah, bad. I mean, You're going to have to work another five years to make up for what we've lost. Well, he, he's so far. Republicans aren't making a bigger deal out of right. that. I don't even hear Republicans talking about the stock market. I mean, why not? 
Uh, well, yeah, it's, no, I, mean, I agree with that. I mean, it all fits into the larger economic picture of you know, losing your purchasing power and seeing your quality of life diminish as a result, both prices as well as you know, resources that you've accumulated that have now been uh, de-accumulated for you. Um, but the, the thing on, on abortion, too, you know, part of this is, and, and again, this is like a, a longer discussion that needs to be had over several cycles. You know, a lot of women have had abortions. And they think that uh, if you oppose abortion in any circumstance, you're somehow standing in judgment of them or you're saying they did something bad or they did something wrong or they're a bad person. And, you know, that's just not the case. I mean, there's, there's this, this it's it's uh, maybe if this is you know, partly I mean, to do a little psychoanalysis, maybe it's partly guilt, uh, uh, you know, upon further reflection over time. But but that's just not the case. And I, I guess. I guess we have to try to have a deeper conversation on the topic um, or maybe to do a better job messaging on the topic uh, in a proactive way as opposed to a reactive way and responding to rape, incest, exceptions, and so on and so forth. Um, because it, the, the, the discussion is just so stilted. It's, it's almost as bad as the discussion on race in this country because of these same uh, just insufferable rich white leftists. Yeah, I mean, we're living in really two different countries. And in your opinion about almost everything these days depends upon what your source of news is, where you're getting your news. I mean, I don't know if you folks saw this. I didn't see this reported in the media, but I saw it in sort of all the different questions of looking at the. There was a New York Times-Siena College poll that came out last week, which was very encouraging to Republicans. One of the questions they asked was, um, do you consider Donald Trump to be a threat to democracy? Then they asked, do you consider Joe Biden to be a threat to democracy? And then they asked, do you consider the media, the mainstream media, to be a threat to democracy? And would you believe that 85% of Americans answered that the media, the mainstream media, is a threat to democracy? I thought that was one of the most encouraging things that I've seen in a very long time. Well, I mean, but... But, but starting to wake up to this. Yeah, but, but it's also sort of one of those things where it's, you know, it's, it's people and they're still in their camps, right? I mean... MSNBC and CNN right. are a threat to democracy on one hand. Fox and other outlets are a threat right. to democracy on the other hand. No, that's true. So that's I, fair enough. But I mean, even independents, like an overwhelming, an overwhelming majority of independents, also saw this yeah. too. So yeah, I, I thought it was a very encouraging trend. Yeah, well, I, I agree. If you're looking for alternative sources, or you're looking to do a better job of synthesizing the information that you do access, you know, and I, I, but part of this too is like, come on, threats to democracy. Everything is a freaking existential threat, and every right. person you it agree with, you disagree with, is just going to stage a coup d'état. No, I mean, no, it's no. just so and silly, think, you know. You know, you know I, no, I what? How? Here's how I took that was. I don't think most Americans really believe that, but people wanted to express something negative, disapproval yeah. for the media, and that was the only question they had in the survey was, "Are they a threat to democracy?" And you know what? If they asked me the question, I probably would have said yes too, even though I think it's completely overblown. Yeah. It's not a threat to democracy. But people wanted to say they wanted to express disapproval of the media, and eighty-five percent of them did so, which I like. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, uh, you, you had a good piece too uh, in the in the uh, Spectator uh, last the other week, uh, talking about how the media characterizes world leaders too. I mean, you know, uh, your your Nicolas Maduro is uh, center left, and uh, Georgia Maloney is. Uh, you know, a right-wing extremist. She's the second coming of Mussolini. And but, but I mean, we see that they do it uh, with international players. They do it with domestic players. 
Yeah, I mean, Google that one if you're interested in this. But yeah, absolutely. There's, there's literally, there isn't a far left leader in the United, anywhere in the world, according to the American media. You literally cannot find them on even Cuba's, you know, Communist Party, a Marxist Prime Minister in Peru, uh, Lula da Silva in Brazil. You name it. There, there's no such thing as far left. But basically, almost everybody's far right these days. It's, it's sick, isn't it? Well, and it's a bit, of, and it's also a reflection, right? I mean, they and some some savvy when it comes to marketing, they understand that you know being far left or being a, marketing yourself as a communist or even a socialist doesn't really close a whole lot of sales, and so you market yourself as you know centrist, uh, progressive, and then you just apply that label to people with whom you generally agree. Right. Exactly. Dave Seminara, former diplomat, author of Footsteps of Federer, Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wonderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the Ends of the Earth. Dave, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Great talking to you. Take care, guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.